I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and you're listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania, taken from my Sunday sermons. During these times of uncertainty as the coronavirus continues to spread, I pray that the peace of the Holy Spirit would be with you and your family. Here's what we have for today. Uh, Again, this morning we'll be looking at Psalm 62. Uh, I would love if you could follow along, uh, if you could open up your Bibles or your Bible app this morning. Uh, If you're new to Christianity or perhaps you've kind of stumbled across this live stream by accident, um, if you open up your Bible in half, you'll likely land in the book of Psalms and we'll be in Psalm 62. Uh, Many of you will be aware that the Psalter is arranged into five sections. Uh, Psalm 62 falls in the second of these five. Uh, This set of psalms kind of looks forward to the future reign of the Messianic King over all of the nations of God. Um, It is a section in the Psalter that could be described as a section of hope, uh, a hope and an acknowledgement of God's actions on behalf of his people. Uh, The early church father said of the psalms, Uh, that in them you learn about yourself, Uh, you find depicted in it all the movements of your soul, all its changes, its ups and downs, its failures and recoveries. Uh, And this is certainly true of this psalm this morning. We find therein a a dejected David, uh, one who kind of feels battered and assaulted on all sides. Uh, This may be many of us this morning, uh, kind of low of soul, discouraged, disheartened, beaten down by the various trials that life has thrown our way. Uh, Perhaps confused or overwhelmed by the updates on the pandemic, perhaps daily being drawn towards the the temporal and rather towards the eternal. Uh, I was speaking to my dad a while back on the phone and he put it aptly. He said, life never seems to get any easier. Uh, If this is you today, one for whom life never seems to get any easier, this psalm is written for you. I know it is certainly written for myself. But ultimately, the psalm lifts us off of this trial and points us to the one in whom there is hope. It draws us out of the temporal and towards the eternal. When the fog of life, when darkness is closing in on all sides, it points us to the refuge of light, to a God who is not far, to a God who speaks to us in the silence. I'm going to go ahead and read Psalm 62. If you'd like to, you may rise. Um, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Trust, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. 
Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Almighty and Eternal God, uh, you are a God who is hidden and yet revealed. A God who may be known but is yet beyond comprehension. A God whose ways are beyond ours, yet you have given us a path, a way to walk on. Apart from your rest and your comfort, we are restless creatures. Lord, but yet you have also formed our minds that we might seek you. You have stirred our hearts that we might find you. As we turn to your word this morning, Lord, we ask that you would feed us, comfort us, encourage us, build us up in the faith. Bless us, O Lord, through your word and turn our hearts towards you. Amen. In 1966, there was a fiction book written called Silence. Uh, This was recently put into a film starring uh, Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver under the same title. If you have not seen it, I highly recommend it. Uh, When Push Comes to Shove, the book and the movie are about faith and doubt, uh, certainty and disillusionment in the face of silence from God and the pressures of a hostile society. The book takes place in the 17th century, uh, where there's a young Jesuit priest named Seb who travels to Japan to assist the building up of the church and to kind of look for his mentor who has gone missing. He does this alongside a fellow priest named Gurupe. In Japan at the time, the Christian population had been driven underground, and those who were discovered to be Christians or suspected to be Christians are forced to step on a carved image of Christ And those who refuse to step on the image are imprisoned and then eventually hung upside down over a pit and slowly bleed to death. When Father Seb arrives in Japan, he is shocked by the condition of the church and kind of plagued by theological questions. Moreover, he discovers that his mentor, Ferrari, has left the faith. In other words, he has stepped upon the image of Christ and avoided martyrdom. The plot of the book, however, is kind of complex. The priests are often asked to step upon the image, uh, not to save their own lives or to keep themselves from suffering, but so that others might not suffer. The torment they face is existentially difficult, and the reader is left wondering, will the priest hear from God? Will the priest eventually get a sign from the Lord on what he is meant to do? Seb's soul waits in silence, tormented by the silence of God. He is faced with the decision of whether or not he will step on the image or he will be faithful to Christ. Father Seb even confesses in prayer at one point, I feel so tempted, I feel so tempted to despair. I'm afraid. The weight of your silence is terrible. I pray, but I'm lost. Or am I just praying to nothing? Nothing, because you are not there. We have experiences of this darkness in our own lives. We've all faced within our lived experience the culmination of life's circumstances that seem to kind of mount an overwhelming attack against ourselves, against God's goodness and his love. We've all woken up and felt defeated even by our self-selected alarm clock and the music that it plays. Even that is not comforting to us. Likewise, we have retreated to the comforts of our duvets at the end of the night, 
beaten down by the trials of the, the previous day. The darkness of the night can often mirror our mental and emotional state, even spiritual. And when we look out at the world, we are not comforted there either. There we are met with no security. There we are met with no safety. There we are met with fear of the unknown, the fear for our health, the fear of health of our family and friends. And the psalmist is really no stranger to this reality. So let's take a look at how the psalmist responds to this. Well, the first verse of the psalm begins with an emphatic alone or only. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. This emphatic use of alone occurs six times in the psalm. Four of these refer to God. Verse 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence. Verse 2, he alone is my rock and my salvation. Verse 5, for God alone, O my soul, waits in silence. Verse 6, he alone is my rock and my salvation. It is God alone who we are waiting upon. We might notice the repetitive nature of the psalm, then the first and second section kind of replacing before us these two things. One, God's silence. And then secondly, God as the rock of salvation. The psalmist gives himself here a simple direction to be silent. And he rests in a simple theological truth that he is not able to deliver himself, but the rock of his salvation will have to deliver him. There is only a single source of hope for the believer in the darkness. And this too is repeated in verse 1 and verse 5. From him comes my salvation. From him comes my hope. We will focus on the first of these in this first point. From him comes my salvation. Verse 3 and 4 describe the experience of the psalmist. It is one of the unwearied cruelty towards him. The psalmist is tired, exhausted. How long must this assault continue? The mischief is not trite. It is overwhelming in some manner. It is a large wall that looms over him. It is one which assaults the place of God. It takes pleasure in the destruction of God's throne. And though it seems to speak of truth, it is nothing but lies. But the first and second verse do not allow us to stay in the reality of 3 and 4. David immediately gives himself an imperative to follow and a theological truth to submit to. He will be silent, for from God comes salvation. He awaits for the deliverance of God in silence. He will be passive and await God's action. This is a strange contrast. It is not a passage that suggests our lives are silent. Uh, the language used suggests our lives are being laid siege to. It is the cacophony of, of war, the fog of war, the noise of the enemy is sucking us into battle whether these be spiritual or physical realities, or some combination of both. Yet amidst this siege, the psalmist leans into silence. In this silence, his soul waits. His soul waits for the rock of his salvation. His soul finds surety in the God of his refuge. Despite the towering presence of the enemy, he knows it is a wall that will crumble, while he will not be greatly shaken. How does the psalmist find comfort in the silence? Well, in this first section, the psalmist finds comfort amidst the silence, the return to confidence in who God is. It is a theological truth that comforts him. The psalmist is persuaded that he will not be overcome 
by the assault of the enemy on account of who God is. God is a fortress, he says. This language, of course, is illustrative. God is not a literal fortress. But his actions on behalf of his people demonstrate him to be like a fortress. He will not be conquered. He is a safe haven. He is reliable. Despite the assaults of the enemy, he will not be overcome. He is a fortress. Uh, In Edinburgh, I go to school about 200 yards from Edinburgh Castle. One of the amazing things about the castle is that you can see it from anywhere in the city. If you just, anytime you're walking around, you can look up and there's the castle. It also has the most cannons of any castle in all of Europe and is only approachable from one narrow street. When I think of God being described as a fortress, I think of the Edinburgh Castle. God is always a fortress. He is always able for us to see him when we walk around the city, when we are in our lives, he is a fortress that looms large over us. While God is a fortress, our lives are not fortresses. We may construct them all we want, but they ultimately do not provide us with security and the comfort we desire. The tunnels of our brain provide no security against the onslaught of our own insecurities, our own shortcomings, and often we are just as much at war with ourselves and our own sin as we are with the enemies external to us. We are no fortress. The world is no such fortress. Thus, we must retreat to the one who is a fortress. In the second section, we have the repetition of this theological truth from the first section repeated. That is, verses 1 and 2 are nearly identical to verses 5 and 6. But where we have the word salvation in verse 1, hope is swapped in in verse 5. Thus, we transition to the second section. It is important not to breeze past this repetition. Uh, Those of us who encounter the darkness of life, when sin, Satan, and the world stand mounted against us, against our experience of religion, against our our daily lives, uh, sometimes church can even seem trite. Uh, The words of the minister, uh, the fellowship of other believers, or the lack of fellowship right now, uh, cannot seem like enough. We feel helpless and hopeless uh, adrift. Uh, We eat the bread and drink the cup as those who are empty of hope, but in need of it. Again, the wall of the enemy appears large. The psalmist repeats again, though, to wait in silence on the Lord, and again places before himself a theological truth. His hope is from the Lord. He repeats this for two reasons. One, it is not easy. We are creatures who are time and time again called away from the source of our hope and comfort. We are quick to seek solace in anything but God. We veer away from the silence. The assaults of the enemy are loud, but we can make our lives even louder. But the decibel level of our distracted lives does not thwart the attack of the enemy. Thus the psalmist places before him again the instruction to be silent. This perhaps is mostly true because we often succumb to the pressures of the enemies. We often seek out noise. The second reason the psalmist repeats to wait in silence on the Lord is he is the one in whom we will find hope. Because to hear is the true origin of hope. That's the second point the psalmist is making. God is the true origin of hope. We will find no rest for our ragged souls if we do not recognize and submit our lives to this theological reality. The origin, the object, the destiny of hope is God. 
There's an old uh, Dutch summary of what the Bible teaches uh, called the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, And I think the Heidelberg Catechism is instructive here. Uh, The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Uh, To which the Catechism responds, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit. And he assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. The psalm, much like the catechism, points us to find comfort not in ourselves, but that we are God's and in who God is. The psalmist prods us along this direction. Take a look at verse 8. It reads, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. The psalmist has previously directed himself towards silence in the face of his trials, likely a counter to desire to busy himself and distract himself from the reality of his situation. He has placed before himself both the theological truths that his salvation and his hope comes from the Lord. Now he turns to us and extorts us to trust in God at all times and pour out our hearts before him. The expression at all times should be taken quite literally, uh, both in trials and in success, in adversity and prosperity. Uh, There are two things I kind of want to draw out. Uh, First, that our season of darkness should not lead us away from finding comfort. Um, Well, let me read this first. In this section of John Calvin's commentary on the Psalms, uh, he provides a a helpful pastoral reminder. Uh, John Calvin, if you're not sure who he was, he was a a French theologian from the 16th century. Uh, Much of Protestantism, or or the UCC we can even say, uh, is indebted to uh, Calvin's work in, in Geneva, Uh, back at that time. So all of us American Christians were very much indebted to his thoughts. So what does he say about uh, this this passage? Well, he said, God tries his children with afflictions, but here they are taught by David to abide them with constancy and courage. The hypocrites who are loud in their praises of God so long as prosperity shines upon their head, while their heart fails them upon the first approach of trial, dishonor his name by placing a most injurious limitation to his power. We are bound to put honor upon his name by remembering in our greatest extremities that to him belong the issues of life and death. And as we are all too apt at such time to shut up our affliction within our own breast, a circumstance which can only aggravate the trouble and embitter our minds against God. So Calvin's trying to draw out two things here about this passage. Uh, The first is that our season of darkness should not lead us away from finding comfort in God's power, but rather direct us towards it. And secondly, and in tune with the psalm, instructs us to pour out our hearts before God rather than embittering ourselves against God by not telling him uh, what we're kind of feeling and thinking. We might turn back to the book Silence again here. Uh, Alongside of the two priests, Father Seb and Father Grupe, is a Japanese man named Kajiro. Uh, Kajiro, we might see as something of of the Judas Iscariot of the book. He's a drunk, a coward, uh, and throughout the story, Kajiro apostatizes several times, meaning he he steps on the image of Christ. 
uh, and even betrays Father Seb and other Christians to the Japanese officials, either for money or to save himself. Uh, so it's not hard to see how he might take on this Judas Iscariot uh, kind of type within the narrative. But as Father Seb is imprisoned, Kajiro follows him in his imprisonment. Kajiro begs the priest for forgiveness and seeks forgiveness, even voluntarily offering himself for imprisonment so he might be close to the priest. Father Seb kind of wavers as we all might, feeling some kind of sympathy for the man, but also resentment and hatred uh, for the treacherous Kajiro who had turned him into the officials, which causes him to reflect on Christ's relationship to Judas, whether Christ loved the man who he knew would betray him, or whether Judas was only some sort of uh, divine puppet given the worst role in the narrative. What is true of Kajiro, however, in silence is also true of us. We have many failures. We are also plagued by the realities of life. Alongside the psalmist, alongside Kajiro, we are beaten down more than we'd like to admit. We are accompanied by dark seasons and hope to be rescued from those trials. But what Kajiro does do right is he confesses. This too the psalm instructs us to do in verse 8. Our silence is to be accompanied by the pouring out of our hearts before the Lord. We might call this prayer or perhaps confession. When our hearts are burdened by our circumstances, there is sometimes no freedom in prayer. It is difficult to pray. Prayer becomes increasingly difficult. Our troubles remain stored in our heavy hearts. But in these trying circumstances, it is in his presence that relief is extended. Precisely by entering into his presence in silence, in humble submission in him and in crying out to him, we experience the comfort that he offers. Uh, there was recently a New York Times article uh, called Wittgenstein's Confession. Um, most people will not know who Wittgenstein is. Uh, he's, uh, his full name is Ludwig Wittgenstein. He was one of the most influential uh, 20th century philosophers. He's shaped uh, much of modern discourse. Uh, across the 1930s, though, this man who is, who is not a Christian, uh, he wrote a series of letters to various friends that were confessions of sorts. Uh, of his own shortcomings, of his own sins and failures, uh, both as a family member, as a colleague, and as a friend. Why, why did this man, who was not known to have professed any belief in Christ, find confession to be so powerful? Well, Wittgenstein longed to change himself, and he saw confession as a means to fulfilling this. For him, he saw confession as a way of removing obstacles which stood in the way of becoming kind of the best version of himself. And there is something instructive there for us. There is, of course, a catharticness to confession, a healing that takes place as we kind of shift from, from one liminal state of being human to another. But confession to God is much grander than this. There is a, a kind of a, a balance we need to strike. We are told both to become silent and to pour out our hearts before the Lord. But these two things are not in opposition to one another. They are not antithetical. They mutually inform one another. As we are silent, as we become passive before the Lord and appeal to Him as our only hope and comfort, as we call upon Him to be, him to be such, we are met by Him. Our deliverance and hope is restored as we seek refuge before the Lord. In this silence, we are met by a God who speaks. In this silence, we are met by a God who meets His people. Thus we shift to the final few verses of the psalm. 
Now, before we can address directly God's answer to us, we must see ourselves again. Verse 9 places before us the fleetingness of mankind, uh, kind of reminiscent of Ecclesiastes. Human life is connected with a simple breath or a simple vapor. And and even all of humanity does not conjure up to be more than this simple breath. Within the context of this psalm, this verse sets before us then an interesting kind of twofold scope of who man is. Uh, One man is but a vapor within the ever-expanding universe. We are kind of a flash in the pan. We are also helpless. We cannot conjure up our own deliverance. We are trapped by the assaults of the enemy. And just as we are a vapor, our our strength is very similar to a vapor. We cannot deliver ourselves. On the other side of the scope, however, is the concrete reality of God's love and deliverance for such a vapor. God loves man. Despite being just a breath, we are given infinite worth and value by the love of a sovereign God. And we might see an overlap with a twofold scope of hope presented in the passage. It is kind of both personal and cosmic. For the one in darkness, the psalm displays God's power and mercy and love for his creature in a personal way. For it is by his power, mercy, and love for him that salvation comes. On account of his omnipotence, that is God's infinite eternal power, and God's immutability, that is God's unchanging and unwavering character, so God is all-powerful and unchanging, we can be assured that our silence is our, our, sorry, we can be assured that he is our only source of hope. In his love and mercy is not far from us. In the silence, he hears us when we cry out to him. We would do well in the silence to contemplate God's power and his mercy as the psalmist does here. The God of power and mercy towers far above the assaults that loom over us. He is like the Edinburgh Castle that can be seen anywhere in the city. The God of power and mercy towers far above the temporal trials of of our present day. Yet this God who towers far above us is also near to us. And when we lose sight of this God, which we are prone to do, we fall victim to a vision of God who is is idle and unconcerned, far removed from the events of the world. But there can be no security, no comfort, no hope if we lose sight of a God who is close to us, a God who is a God of power, mercy, and love. With a firm conviction of his power, we will find him to be a sure refuge, a strong tower that we might run to one who effortlessly upholds the universe by his word. One who is not only transcendent, but also near to us, that is imminent. And these two kind of theological categories are not in confliction with one another. Rather, because God is transcendent, his imminence is possible. God is with us without taking up space. He is with us in each moment as one who is not subject to the constraints of time. In other words, God's eternal power, God's infinite, uh, unchanging nature is exactly what allows him to be close to us. This personal hope, of course, is extended to God's gracious covenantal love, which is extended towards his people. This is what we see in verse 12. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. This word rendered steadfast love in the ESV uh, is a single word in the Hebrew, It is a word that in essence describes God's stubborn, unrelentless love for his people. That no matter what the cost, he will love them. 
Despite the mystery then, despite the bleakness of your current situation, or perhaps the global situation, the psalmist points us to find our hope in the steadfast love of God towards his people, God's power, God's mercy, and God's love. And this God does not leave us in the silence, for after all, God has spoken. Verse 11 reads, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. There is some uh, ambiguity to what the psalmist might mean in verse uh, verse 11. Uh, Some take it to be about the unity of God's word, as played out primarily uh, for Christians in the Old and New Testament, or for the Jewish people who had been uh, reading this originally in the Law and the Prophets. Um, The early church father, Augustine, I think has a convincing reading of it. Um, And and part of being a Christian is kind of learning how to think alongside of the church. Uh, So we're thinking alongside of Augustine in this verse. Um, He suggests that the psalm is pointing us towards the eternal begotten word. Uh, That is the second person of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The second, second person of the Trinity is the Son, the eternal begotten word, by whom all things are spoken into existence and by whom all things are known. For in that word, Augustine says, there was that which was made before it was made. And in that word, by which all things were made, were all things. In other words, Colossians 2, 3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Thus, through Augustine's eyes, the psalm points us towards the speaking of all things into existence by the eternal word. And us, as his creatures, hear this word twice. Once through external revelation, that is the world, the created world around us, we we witness God in this world, and also scripture is a part of this external revelation. And then secondly, internally, in our hearts, as the testimony of the Spirit bears witness to this word. Thus the eternal word, Christ who has fashioned the world and upholds it now, also fashioned your hearts and upholds you today. How might we understand this further in light of the psalm? Well, it is the same word that greets us in the silence. We are met in the silence by the God who took on flesh and faced the same silence. We are met by the word who embraced our silence as his own. Of course, I am speaking of Jesus Christ, the one who took on flesh and entered into the human condition, who faced the assaults of the spiritual world and with them the temptations of the flesh and the lusts of the physical world. In Christ, we have the one from whom our salvation comes. In Christ, we have the one from whom our hope comes. In Christ, we have the rock of our salvation. The word who spoke once, but is made known to us, both in the external world and internally in our hearts. He is our hope in the silence. This hope that delivers us personally is also a cosmic hope. It is a hope in which those enemies which are assaulting us, too, will be judged. But in our union with Christ, we will find ourselves exalted alongside of him. This is what is meant by the closing line of the psalm that God will render to a man according to his work. That is part of the cosmic hope we experience is that we can trust God because God will judge or mete out to each man according to his deeds. Alongside renewing and redeeming us, this cosmic hope will condemn all that is evil, uplift all that is just, restore all of nature by grace. The tall wall of our fears and doubts, our anxieties and restlessness will tumble down. 
But like the psalmist, we must await for this deliverance. And when the word returns, we will not be silent, but we will confess his name. If you are in the darkness this morning, find solace and comfort in the God who has entered into the silence. A God who is powerful and merciful. A God who loves you. As Calvin writes, how can we be afraid when the God who covers us with the shadow of his wings is the same who rules the universe with his nod, holds in secret chains the devil and all the wicked, and effectively overrules their designs and intrigues. The cosmic and yet personal Christ has not left us in the silence, but rather he has entered into our silence. He has not left us in our suffering, but rather he suffered on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, this is the great mystery of the gospel and the great mystery of our faith, that the one who created all things entered into our suffering, entered into our silence, entered into our despair, entered into our doubt, so we might know and worship him for all eternity. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are needy children. Uh, we are in need of comfort. We are in need of your spirit and in need of remembering the great work of your Son. We are grateful today that you are not a distant God, but a God who is close, a God who knows us intimately, though we be but vapors. Help us, Lord, to cast our hope upon you. In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If anyone listening is in the area here in Northampton and in need of help or food or supplies, please reach out and let us know through private message on our Facebook page, Zionstone UCC, or through our website, zionstoneucc.com. To all who have given and continue to support us during the closing of the church during the coronavirus, thank you so much for your love. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen.